This is a Podcast 225 production. Welcome to the Clay Young Show. Well, part one of our discussion with Detective Tom Lang did not disappoint. In fact, we were joking about this because in the ep- in the opening of episode 132, part one of our discussion on OJ, I inadvertently <laughs> called him one of the lead attorneys. <laughs> and so he said uh, he might have some buddies giving him a hard time about going over to the dark side. <laughs> But no, 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 just, you know, what we lay down here audio-wise is what goes up, and uh, we missed that one on this end. But anyway, part one was great. I think you are really going to enjoy part two. The evidence, the interview, the slow speed chase, and so much more. I'd like to encourage you again to buy the book, Evidence Dismissed. I bought it. It is a manifesto about the O.J. Simpson trial, the murders before the trial, and some of the aftermath since the trial. Detective Lang did a recent postscript to the book last year, including more than a dozen perceptions, false perceptions versus reality, and he backs up his assertions of reality with fact. He also deals in the postscript with Detective Furman, And he talks about some of the recent TV that uh, we've seen about O.J. Simpson, the movie last year, the documentary last year. So buy the book, man. It's it's a great read. Evidence Dismissed. You can get it on Amazon or just Google Evidence Dismissed. It is a worthwhile purchase if you really want to know the facts of what happened back in 1994. A really, really dark day and the beginning of reality TV as we know it now, even though we didn't know it back then. All right, we'll take a quick break and then come back and jump back into our conversation with Detective Lang. Promote your business or organization on podcast225.com. Podcast225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for Louisiana listeners. Every month, thousands hear the weekly Clay Young Show. Every week, Clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people. Posting your company's logo on the podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Clay Young here with Brian Lowe with Brian Lowe Financial and online at brianlowefinancial.com. Many of you may not know, but Brian hosts a weekly radio show called The Financial Symphony Show, and it is great information for people trying to learn. Let's talk about that radio show. It was probably an income planning mm-hmm. uh, session to understand when you can retire, how to yeah. retire, what are people doing with their money, how to protect and preserve their wealth, mm-hmm. talk about uh, your values and what to do with your money. Also, we talk about Social Security. Well, what time in New Orleans? Well, it's actually 10 a.m. on Sunday okay. in New Orleans. Okay. And in Baton Rouge. Rouge on Saturdays at 1. Okay. And then during the week, Wednesday nights at 6. Mm-hmm. It's great information. You can sit and listen to Brian, take his time talking about financial planning and, and a lot of these great things. And you have classes as well that happen across the Gulf South. Yeah, if you're thinking about an income planning class, now's the time to jump in there. It's three weeks of coursework, two hours a night, a free textbook. It's a $1,000 value. Look it up at brianlowfinancial.com. Welcome back to The Clay Young Show. All right, folks, we are about to jump right back into our conversation with retired LAPD Detective Tom Lang about what took place 
In the collection of evidence, we will talk about the interview with O.J. Simpson and some of the inconsistencies there, a little bit more about that as a matter of fact. We will talk, yes, about the slow speed chase, as I said to you in episode 132, part one of our discussion. Detective Lang was the officer on the phone with O.J. Simpson as he was in the backseat of that Bronco. Now, just a bit of a note here, you're going to hear us reference apparently a technical difficulty that was happening in the show. Detective Lang was having some trouble making out what I was saying in parts of our interview, but on our end, as you will hear, it was crystal clear. So uh, we did get through it, and I think you you will get 100% the context of what he is saying. And and I think you will be really informed and at some point at some points entertained by what you will hear. So without further delay, let's jump back into our conversation with Detective Lang. When I was reading the transcript, and by the way, in the book, there is the entire transcript of uh, the interview, which is fascinating because I think Stevie Wonder could see inconsistencies in that story, Tom. (laughs) He told me, and and we'll get to that, but the book says, but as much as they want Simpson's story, they also want to have enough goodwill with him by the end of the interview that he will agree to be fingerprinted, permit the freshly injured middle finger of his left left hand to be photographed before it heals and allow the LAPD to take a blood sample. This is the tightrope Lang and Van Adder must walk. Regardless of what comes out of the interview, that blood, if Simpson's really guilty, will be the smoking gun the detectives need to clear this case. Now, I understood what you were doing. This guy's going to sit with you. You have all of this blood. You need to be able to say, okay, we got his blood, we got his fingerprint, and the whole nine. So, you you reference in the book that his attorney was not there, and they went to lunch. What the hell? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, these, these aren't uh, high-dollar criminal attorneys. These are uh, showbiz attorneys, quite frankly. And again, he pulled the same thing on them. He says, hey, listen, I can handle these guys because Simpson knew cops. He had friends who were cops. Uh, he's, uh, again, so narcissistic that, hey, he can handle a couple of cops here because he'll just tell us about all of his friends on the department, and he'll be able to run everything. He can handle anything because he's O.J. Simpson. This is all normal stuff. But also, and so they they probably wanted to stay. I'll give them that. But uh, you're never going to hear that with Simpson calling the shots here. In addition, what we wanted, we were also putting together a search warrant to go back to Rockingham because of the blood that had been found there. We can't just willy-nilly go on and go through the house. We needed a search warrant. And so Phil had gone back to get the search warrant earlier that morning, and after we concluded this interview, we were going to go back to Rockingham with Simpson and conduct this search. I wanted Simpson there with us, and I asked him after the interview, I said, listen, we've got a search warrant. Will you go back there and give us a hand so we can get through this thing and get out of your hair for a while? He says, yeah, sure, because now we're close. We've listened to everything he said. Nobody's yelled at him. No one's accused him of anything. We're buddies. We go back to the house, and he walks through the house with me, and I ask him questions. He's already been advised of his rights, and he's answering questions. I ask him about the, the clothing and the shoes. We go into his closet. I said, what were you wearing last night? He says, well, I was wearing this, that, and the other. We don't go in there expecting to find a pile of bloody clothing. But we do have footwear impressions that are giving us a complete shoe 
soul and heal. We have the size of that shoe, and we're going to be able to size the shoe. So I, I'm going in there and asking Simpson, what did you have on your feet last night? He points to a, a pair of athletic shoes that he said he had on the night before. I pick them up. I turn them over. They're nowhere near the footwear impression that we have at the scene. But I said, is it okay with you if I, if I take these shoes? He says, fine, because he knows he didn't have those on last night, and there couldn't be any footwear impressions with those shoes at the scene. So he forgets all the way. He doesn't know why I took them. I didn't take them because they had blood on them. I took them for the size. Through his own admission, he has sized his footwear as size 12. That's exactly the same size we have at the crime scene. So I took those to circumstantially show, through his own admission, that his feet are the same size as we have at the crime scene left by the suspect. If they were size 10 and a half, that would be exculpatory evidence. But this is inculpatory evidence. It's right. size 12. Devastating stuff. If, if we didn't... If we didn't have this rapport with Simpson and we're treating him some kind of a of a bad guy yelling at him and a bad cop, good cop thing, he never would have said anything. He wouldn't have talked to me. We never would have gotten that evidence. It's as simple as that. I agree. And and just so people will understand, Simpson was given his Miranda rights before you started. And oh, yeah? by sure. by Detective Van Adder and he waived his right to silence. He wanted to openly participate in this discussion. And he and, uh, according to the transcript and, and it's it was the transcript comes from the actual tape of the interview. He said that he drove the Bronco. He 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 had last driven it the day before. That he parked it where it was parked and up on the curb like that. So he admitted to having parked it that way, kind of in a hurry. And right. I so don't want to jump ahead because there were so many inconsistencies. It's like, well, why would you park it that way in a rush after when you went to uh, McDonald's with Cato? Uh, you were in your Bentley. You were. It, it didn't make sense. But okay, so let's start with the beginning of this and how you how you commenced this this interview and in, in the effort to establish a rapport and then get information out of him. Okay, well, when you sit down in the interview under these circumstances with this type of a personality, and this this guy thinks he can run the show, you allow him to believe he's running the show. I mean, you do the you do this old uh, this old routine uh, about uh, you know whatever you say because you know we just want to hear your side of the story. If you if you start pushing him, if you get somebody's face under these circumstances, he's just going to walk. So we allow him to go on and tell his story. And what he gives us in the short 33-minute interview here is three different reasons why his finger is bleeding. Three completely different reasons. None of them make any sense. He also alludes to parking his, when he goes to the coals, he always parks in the alley. Well, this is where a suspect parked. This is where his blood led to. Uh, these are all inconsistent statements. The, the family wanted me to go to dinner. No, they didn't. That's a lie. In fact, Judith and uh, Brown told us just the opposite. These are all inconsistencies that should have been brought out during this trial. A person who's honest and straightforward and telling the truth isn't going to have inconsistencies such as this. It's just, it's just not going to happen. 
And then so, you know, he's talking, he talked about what he had done that day. He talked about going to see his uh, recently ex-girlfriend, who, by the way, apparently had left him a Dear John voice message earlier in the day dumping him, which, and and she was out of town, as he admitted, you know, she was going out of town. I don't know why you would say he was going over to see her when he had already admitted exactly. that she was gone. Yeah, and and so you, you brought up the, the dinner that the family had at the Mezzaluna after the the, after the recital and he left, uh, you know, getting to the finger, he talked about having reopened, he injured it in Chicago, then he reopened it in Chicago when he said he broke a glass and he didn't know how he opened it in, in, in Los Angeles and talking about bleeding all the time, which is one of the weirdest freaking things I've ever heard somebody, I bleed all the time. It's like, who says that, you know? Um, so, so as, how are you tying this together? Kind of give us, take us inside of the mind of a detective when you're when you're sewing up these loose ends that he's just hanging out there what are some of the things that you're going yep check that 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 that's right okay check mm-hmm, that makes sense what are some of those things well again you look for inconsistencies uh you, you look for common sense responses to common sense and questions uh you know the uh the stories even got better once he got attorneys as far as uh, uh, what he was doing the night of the murders. Uh, according to Johnny Cochran, he's in his front yard at Rockingham chipping golf balls uh, waiting for the limousine because there's a small half-moon-shaped travel bag that we wanted to find that we never did that I believe he had his bloody clothes and shoes in that he dumped at, at LAX, LA Airport, uh, before getting on that plane. I assume you want to get into that a little, little later, perhaps. But you yes. look for inconsistencies. Uh, you press to a certain point uh, prior to someone invoking. Once they invoke, they walk out, you've lost them. But we keep Simpson on as long as we can because he's his own worst enemy, and sooner or later he's going to make another inconsistent statement. These are things that can be used against him. Like I said, I could have testified to those in trial. Uh, the DA, for a number of reasons, didn't put that on like they didn't put on a whole lot of evidence in this case because they knew it was the cops who were basically on trial here. Well, and that, and I, I do want to get to that as well because I think the public would be surprised at how much evidence was not used in the murder trial and how much of that same evidence was used in the civil trial that actually right. helped uh, help find Simpson most likely to have committed these murders. So he he agrees to allow that finger to be photographed, and the finger has a scar on the top of the knuckle and one. On kind of south of the knuckle on the well on the inside of of uh, one of, not the inside but on the side of one of the fingers and he agrees to be uh, photographed and you know the weird thing about cutting his hand playing golf cutting his hand on a cell phone and it just doesn't who cuts their hand on a cell phone I don't know how that happens yeah. and when you're <laughs> look I'm pretty bad at golf time I'll be honest with you I never cut myself doing it and yeah. and so um, I, I don't I, he never gave a clear definitive answer and I've got if I've got a fresh cut on my hand that means that it's fairly recent I know how I did it yeah yeah no that's uh, that's common sense that's a common uh, sense uh, of finding there he also says that he bled in his in his car before he left that's right well 
if you cut it in Chicago, then you, well, yeah, I, I cut them all the time. This is something that happens all the time, he's saying. Uh, but it's not just now uh, his finger and his blood everywhere. He's, he's bled Bundy, Rockingham. He's bled in Chicago. He's bled. And, of course, in Chicago, he made a scene of going down to the desk, person at the desk, and asking them if he, they had a Band-Aid because he just cut his finger. Uh, on the uh, on, on the glass that he broke uh, up in his room. There's another interesting story here. I went back to that very room, and it, they secured it for us. And of course, the Chicago police helped us, and they picked up some bloody sheets and everything else. He was bleeding in his room. We, we already knew that, but he's not on a broken glass. The glasses back there are extremely thick. They're thick for a reason because they, they don't. They don't want the hotel doesn't want their patrons dropping That's the glass right. and breaking it and That's cutting right. themselves. That's right. So I purposely took one of their glasses and flung it down the sink. It hit the sink hard and rolled around, and it never broke. And we booked those glasses to show they don't break very easily. Right. This is evidence, all circumstantial, but this shows that it would have been very difficult for him to ever have broken that glass and done that. What he did is he put the glass and smashed it into a towel into the sink. And the blood wasn't distributed the way one would be if you'd cut a glass, uh, cut your finger on a glass. So these glasses are made not to break. These are all little things that you look for when you're following up on, on a statement that somebody gives you. And if they're inconsistent, this is evidence, albeit circumstantial evidence, which is still good evidence. Right. You use this against your suspect. So you you conclude the interview, you get the blood, and there was there. <laughs> there was kind of a suspenseful thing about the blood because you and detective van Adder were driving hard as to, okay, when is the DNA evidence back? When, when do we have results? When do we have results? And that was one of the theme uh, themes through a portion of chapter eight and nine, just kind of going through that. But you, you get, you now have the blood, you've done the interview and we'll skip ahead just to click enter Marsha Clark, which I found interesting that uh, detective van Adder, at least when this thing started, had a decent relationship with uh, Prosecutor Clark. You, on the other hand, not so much. Tell us about that. Yeah, I had a uh, a case just prior to uh, the Simpson case. Well, several of them, but one in particular I was working with Marcia on, and it had to do with a uh, a murder for hire. There were there were two murders involved, and it was a murder for hire with a basically a psychopath out there was hiring out to do this particular murder and I, it happened several years prior and I developed a witness and who was going to testify but this person's life would have been in jeopardy uh, if their identity had been revealed so Marcia knew all of this and we went around together and we interviewed this particular witness and other people and we built a case and we were going to file on this particular uh, individual that uh, committed these murders. Uh, again, there were two murders and one thing led to another and it was a solid case. However, during this, just this, just for the Simpson thing, Marcia went to Phil, who she had handled other cases with, and said, "Listen, why don't you tell Tom that you know I'm not going to file this case because he expected it to be filed or something to that extent, 
but I'm not going to file it. And she didn't give you an excuse or anything else. And Phil, of course, says, well, perhaps you should tell him because it's your case. She didn't want to tell me. So I found out that she wasn't going to, wasn't going to uh, file this particular case. Well, the first thing this does is it puts this witness's life in jeopardy. Because, again, we're talking about a cold-blooded killer who wouldn't mind killing this particular witness because they were going to testify. So that's the first problem. The second one is, why would you say you're going to do something and not? And third, what's the reason that you file this case? Well, in any jurisdiction, the district attorney is, is a politician. They're elected to office. They have to come to the voters with a certain percentage of convictions. If the LADA or any other district attorney's office doesn't think they're going to win a case, they're just not going to file it. They have certain filing procedures, and and if, if uh, your case doesn't measure up, it's just not going to get filed, and that was truly what happened here. Me, I'm saying you put the evidence on, and that's what the jury's job is and the judge's job. Uh, she didn't see it that way. And I had a big problem with that, number one, because she misled me and it was dishonest not to come to me and tell me what's going on. I don't like that. I, I believe that the, uh, the district attorney's job is to to file cases if they're legal and there's evidence and, and that's their job. And, and I don't go along with this BS that uh, <laughs> politics should be involved. And that's the problem with that case. It's been the problem with the Simpson case case. In the Simpson case, the problem with the Simpson case was because everybody tried to be a politician. Right. And everything went sideways. If you do your damn job, it's going to get, you're going to get the right outcome. That didn't happen here. Well, and it's it's so interesting because upon reading that, I just said, wow. And, and, and the book also makes the point that I had not known before that it was Detective Van Adder who basically gift wrapped this thing for Marsha Clark because he called her about it and got her onto this because he believed that her tenacity and hard work and all of that would be beneficial in moving forward with this case. And of course that turned out to uh, be a one-sided bit of loyalty there. We'll get to that. I want to go back for a second and mention something because you talked about it when, when, when Simpson took you to his home, you did ask him what was, what he was wearing uh, that night. And he talked about these bugle boy pants and, and you talked about the Reebok sneakers, just so we don't gloss over that. Could you talk a little bit about that whole exchange about what he was wearing? Yeah, we uh, like I said, because we still had his goodwill. We, he, you know, he's going to help us out and walk us through, and and we just allow him to, you know, kind of be the tour guide here. And I'm asking questions, and I want to get into this closet to find out about the footwears because I want to get one of these pairs of shoes and book it as evidence so we can size them, so we can show the size is the same that we have in the bloody footwear impressions. So it really doesn't matter what size shoes I get, but I want it through his own admission. So I ask, I just lightly ask about the clothing, and we don't expect to find anything, and he points out a couple of innocuous items, and then I said, I ask him about the shoes. <laughs> and the shoes, he points out these Reeboks, and of course I picked the Reeboks up and um, turn them over, and it's not even close to what we have at the crime scene. But I asked him if, you know, I'm, I'm going to hang on to these things to book them. He says, fine, go ahead, take, take anything you want. He says, you can have anything you want here. He said, he's, the biggest thing here is that admission to these shoes and the fact that they're size 12 and they're size 12 at the, at the crime scene. So this is all inclusive of this evidence that's going to show that he was, in fact, a murderer. 
And, you know, it's it's so interesting because obviously he knew that those weren't the shoes that he was wearing. And I, I want to make the point that Van Adder was 100% sure early on that it was Simpson, uh, you know, after you guys had started to put together the pieces of what had happened at Bundy, what had happened at Rockingham, the way he was. And then you were for a long time only 90% sure that he was the guy. You left kind of that small corner to say, well, maybe it's someone else. Talk about that a bit. Well, I'm that way in all cases. Um, These cases are all about evidence. If there's exculpatory evidence, you've got to go after and find out what it is initially and deal with it. It's only going to strengthen your investigation. The more we got into this case, uh, the realization was that there is nothing exculpatory. And once I did realize that, obviously then, when all else fails, you go with the evidence. It's an old homicide cop's axiom. If all else fails, you go with the evidence. That's what happened here. Um, There was nothing exculpatory, but I'm not going to jump on board initially because he's got a cut hand and because he's giving inconsistent statements. You don't jump to conclusions. I never have about anything, and I'm still that way. Uh, In the end, let's wait till we're done. Once we're done, we'll go back and we'll look at everything and we'll weigh it, and it's either there or it's not there, but I'm just, it's just my personality. I just, I just don't jump at things. It's just the way I am. And so after leaving, you now have those sneakers and there was a red speck on the sneakers. And in the book you talk about, it was, it was not blood. Uh, and he innocuous. Ta- yeah. it, was, it was innocuous. And you talked about, he talked about the clothes that he was wearing and he talked about having all these pairs of bugle boy athletic pants because they give them to him uh and you know you've seen it the there you guys obviously leave after being there you know almost the entire day there was the scene at the at the rockingham estate when he gets there and detective van adder had told an officer that you know make sure you you get a hold of him when he gets here uh that detective had handcuffed or excuse me that police officer had handcuffed simpson van adder sees it goes out and takes those cuffs off of him. Talk a little bit about that, because people have seen that clip on television. How'd that happen? Well, again, this was something easily explained, but people didn't want to do it because it it just it, it looks like, you know, oh, we got our suspect type thing. All it, all it is is that Phil looked outside and saw that Simpson had arrived uh, with uh, with a couple of his people, and he was trying to get out of his car, and the media was mobbing him. He was all over him. Obviously, he wants to separate Simpson. He doesn't want Simpson saying anything to the media or anything else. He wants to to get him separated, so he asked the officer go out there, and the media is all over Simpson. Uh, secure him is what Phil said. Secure him. Now, to tell an, an officer that, an officer that depends on what's the officer's mind, that was a very large man the officer was, certainly can, can take care of himself, but in his mind, securing him for his own safety, and perhaps even Simpson's safety, cuff him, move him away from the media and everything else, just temporarily earlier for no other reason. He wasn't cuffed because he was under arrest or anything else. He was cuffed because he was told to secure this possible suspect. 
It's as simple as that, and and that's what happened. Uh, and as soon as Phil got there, he said, "Okay, you take the handcuffs off. We don't need to have these handcuffs on." It's just a simple explanation, as usually happens. When uh, upon doing the search of the house, and people have seen clips of some of that, there was the the thing that people zero in on, and that was the pair of black socks on the floor of OJ's bedroom. We've heard everything from those socks were not there for the initial search because they weren't filmed. Those socks were there. There was blood on those socks, but the preservative uh, EDTA was on those socks, which means that had to be that had to have been planted on those socks or that it was planted on socks with no foot in it. Jeffrey Tubin has I mean, he's been eating off this case for a long time. So let's talk about the collection of evidence and how all of that went there have been so many things said about the way that you guys went about it. So let's talk about that process of going to Rockingham and trying to sew together the pieces of what had happened the day before, really the evening before. Uh, initially, we had to get a search warrant for Bundy. Uh, I'm sorry, not for, for Rockingham. So Phil has gone to... Uh, we've secured Rockingham with patrol officers. No one can search until we get a search warrant. It's just the way it is. That's what the law reads. So Phil goes to get a search warrant, and I return to Bundy and commence my uh, crime scene investigation there. Once they get the warrant, uh, we return to uh, Rockingham, and after the interview of Simpson, uh, we go back to Rockingham and start to search uh, at Rockingham. Initially, going through Simpson's bedroom, which is on the second level, it's evident there are a pair of socks in the middle of the uh, uh, bedroom uh, lying on the floor. Everything else is in place. Uh, He's very neat with the way he hangs his clothing up and the bed is made. There's not uh, garbage around. So it's very obvious that these socks are what we say once again, out of place. Something out of place you get get curious about. So we believe that they are Simpson socks and the way they're lying there, they've just been strewn there by someone who was in a hurry. And by his own admission, Simpson was in fact in a hurry the night before when he was going to Chicago and trying to get together, uh, get ready to be picked up by the limo driver. If these indeed are Simpson socks, we tell ourselves, then he wore them at the time of the murders, which probably occurred within minutes. And I mean 10 minutes, perhaps, of them being thrown on the floor. Uh, because in, there's no way that it took more than four, three and a half to four minutes for him to get to Bundy, to this location, and walk into his house. Took, took no more than four, four minutes, four and a half minutes tops. So these, if they, if they are his socks, they might have blood on them. They're dark colored, so we can't see any blood stains on them. Besides, we're not going to check them anyway. This is something done by a criminalist. And so they are photographed in place and documented. Then they're picked up by the criminalists. Later, there is, after the evidence has been collected, we have an administrative order through the LAPD that all search warrants will be documented on videotape subsequent to the search. This is because of lawsuits that have occurred over the years against the department because they've trashed homes. Some of it uh, was probably overdone, 
and there have been a lot of lawsuits. And so we have to show the the way that the home looked like after our search. And so this is done with a video camera in all of the rooms. This is what happened. Well, when the video camera goes and shoots his bedroom, obviously the socks are not there. That's because they've already been collected by the criminalists. It's as simple as that. That's why you see them in the photo. You don't see them in any clips from the video or in the video <clears throat> because they've been collected. It's a simple, simple matter. The allegations by the defense went on and said, well, the blood was planted. To this day, Alan Dershowitz says Phil planted blood on those socks. He didn't. He doesn't do that thing, those types of things. I don't either. And if you look at this practically, it would have been an impossibility for him to plant the blood on the socks regardless. But even to this day, you see this guy in Fox News saying that Van Adder planted blood on the socks. It didn't happen. The problem arose because the lab was inundated with not just Simpson stuff. We got a lot of murders in L.A. In, in the 80s and, and 1991, in 1992, we had over a thousand murders in the city of Los Angeles. You think Chicago's bad now? We had double what Chicago has now back then. We were very busy, and the lab was very busy. So they didn't get to these socks for like three weeks. This caused people to ask questions, which is fine. But if there's nothing there, then, you know, if you can't prove to me, you say a cop planted evidence, you prove that to me, you show me evidence. Nobody has ever challenged Dershowitz for whatever reason. If they do, it goes away, perhaps. I don't know the reasons. It pisses me off. But we don't plant evidence, and there's none planted in this case. When they finally get around to checking these socks for blood evidence, they discover nine probes of what we call RFLP DNA belonging to Nicole. So they splattered. There's something like, we look at these socks, and the spattering of blood goes around the entire sock, and there's like, I believe it's 39 probes on one sock, and I think the other sock has like 19 probes of RFLP DNA from Nicole Brown. I mean, this is any... This is evidence that would have sealed it regardless of all of the other evidence. With her blood on his socks in his bedroom, uh, they were just thrown on the floor. And, and uh, again, this is all the, because of the three-week delay. And now uh, Dershowitz, it's beyond me how he can be lying about something in such a ridiculous fashion to say that Van Adder did this without showing us how it happened. And no one challenges him. This was just 22, 23 years late. just really fries me. Well, and, you know, it's consistent with what happens with, with media now. The What were your earlier discussions, earliest discussions with the prosecution or prosecuting team about this case? What happened earlier with what? Uh, with 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 the, with the prosecution, as you're talking with them about what you have found and you're laying yeah. this out to them, okay. what was that like? This went on throughout. There is evidence that, you know, in an investigation, a murder investigation, doesn't conclude when you file a case. That now case now belongs to the district attorney when it's filed, but it doesn't mean you've stopped your investigation. And I'd say 95% of the cases, you're only beginning your investigation, and that was true with Simpson. Throughout, we were getting evidence that was never brought in this trial. Um, certainly... Uh, this was part of it. The, the Marcia Clark 
and the prosecution knew that this was the LAPD on trial. This was right after Rodney King, which was horrendous. Let's face it, it looked terrible. Uh, these are the racist cops that are investigating our client. Uh, they, 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 the L.A. riots occurred just before this, which were devastating, some of the worst rioting in the history of our country. So the defense is going to incorporate all of these things that they can to put the cops on trial. The district attorney knew this. But in order to put out all of this blood evidence and all of these things that we did, and this statement with all of these uh, conflicting uh, statements that he made to me and Phil, and all of this other evidence, the, the witness at the airport who she wouldn't put on, who was dumping stuff from, saw Simpson dumping things from this little half-moon-shaped bag into the trash container before he got on the plane. All of these things were never brought because they knew we were on trial. And this is not going to do this because in order for them to put this evidence on, they'd have to put us on. And the jury would hate us. Because we've got live TV and we've got defense attorneys who have not been gagged by the courts, so they can say anything that they want any time during the day. We, however, had been gagged. But the defense attorney has all these impromptu news conferences all day, ripping on evidence and witnesses before they even hit the stand. This is a minority jury who hates the L.A. cops, and so we're on trial. So if Marcia puts me on to discuss this interview, or we talk about the the uh, so-called slow-speed chase and all of the evidence on that, they're going to hate us more. And, and Marcia, so Marcia's going to leave her case entirely dependent on DNA evidence. I understand her thinking, but it's not. it doesn't make sense. When you have a murder case, you put on all of the evidence. You don't keep things out for political reasons. That's what she did. She gambled and she lost. I agree 100%. Just as an aside, are, are you still having connection issues with me? Uh, am I connected with you? No, no. I say, are you still having issues hearing what, I, what I'm saying? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit every now and again. Uh, I just wonder how that's getting taped. It, well, it's it, on my end, I'll tell you that it's it's, it's as clear as a, as a bell because you are not oh. breaking up at all. And okay. it's, it's uh, I mean, it's, it's crystal crackles, clear. It is, Clay. It crackles a little bit between, it crackles a little bit, but I'm able to make out what you say. Well, and because the next portion of this is so important, I don't want to, I want you to be able to clearly hear me. And that is about the car chase where you are guest starring in this psychopathic reality show that's playing out across national television as you are on the phone with uh, with OJ Simpson so let's go to the to the period that led up to that when you decided there was going to be a warrant for his arrest and his attorney now Bob Shapiro had convinced you to allow him to bring OJ in at 11 o'clock on that day right yeah it was uh June 17th, it's on a Friday, 94, and we uh, normally like to just go out if there's an arrest. We don't want publicity. We don't want people around. We just want to make the arrest, do what we can as far as any interview is concerned, uh, and, and just take it from there. Uh, the brass had other ideas because of the, they wanted to, uh, to make a little show here of Simpson turning himself in at the police station, Parker Center downtown. So, you know, we work for a bureaucracy. We have to do what we're, we're told to do. And so we set this up. I set this up with Bob Shapiro. And it was set for 11 o'clock. Simpson would come to Parker Center and turn himself in. We just 
go in the back where no one would see us, this type of thing. But the brass didn't want that. They uh, they wanted a little little show, a little purple arc here, as they call it. So we go along with that, and it, they don't show. So one thing leads to another. I get a hold of, uh, of uh, Shapiro, and uh, he's a little nervous. He says, you know, I can't control him. Uh, you know how he is, this, that, and the other, and uh, we'll be there at 1130. Well, that kept going on for another hour and then another time, and, and all of a sudden they can't find him. Uh, we find out where he had been, and it's up at uh, Bob Kardashian's home in Encino. So I send a couple of black and whites flying up there, and they get up there, and, of course, Simpson's gone, and, and AC had been there, and uh, they took off. Nobody knows where they are or where they went. He didn't tell anybody. He just walked away from Kardashian's home while there was a process involving uh, a, a, a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, attorneys, talking to Simpson and taking pictures of the wounds in his finger and taking his hair samples and all this type of stuff uh, for their supposed defense of Simpson. Anyway, in the middle of all of this, he takes off, and he's gone. So we get this thing that uh, is, is all, it's all over. He's split, and so the media gets all wound up, and the department uh, has to make a release, so they go out and they make a release. And right away, it's big news everywhere. And I'm up in the office, and you know, Simpson is on the run, and nobody knows what we're going to do next. So we're getting our heads together and putting together a, a situation where we're going to have to get a warrant and uh, follow up on the warrant and go through that particular procedure. And in, in the squad bay in our office, we have, of course, television sets up in the corner. And someone said, hey, Simpson's on television or something to that extent. And I look up, and there's a helicopter shot of the of the Bronco going down the freeway. <laughs> Thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. And so they start broadcasting, and then they show his slow speed. They get all these police cars behind them. The, the sirens are blaring. Then uh, it hits me that, you know, this guy's not going to stop, but he's not trying to get away. Uh, unbeknownst to us, they'd been down to Nicole's grave. They turned around and they're now coming back on the San Diego freeway, the 405 going north uh, towards the Rockingham home. But they're like an hour, hour and a half out at these speeds. It's going to take a while to get there. And he's not stopping. So apparently he calls nine, uh, AC calls 911 and tells him what's going on. And he gets a little perturbed on the phone when they ask him questions. Uh, but he won't pull over. He continues to go. He says that Simpson's in the back seat, and he's got a gun to his head. Uh, we haven't seen that for sure, but then I get the Orange County Sheriff's on the phone, and I get the lead car in that so-called pursuit, and he says, yes, we've got up close, and we looked in there, and we saw O.J. in the back, and he does have a gun, and he's got it pointed up. So this kind of ratchets everything up. Uh, we don't know what his mindset is. Why would he do something like this? Uh, we still realize the, the sociopathic aspect of this thing. Is he you know, going to shoot himself? And I'm thinking in the back of my head, it's doubtful if he's a true sociopath. They're not going to do that under these circumstances. Is this just a game? 
And then the reality strikes that, hey, if he's got a gun, and we know he has a gun, the sheriff's not going to lie to me, you have to assume it's a real gun. You have to assume the gun is loaded. And you have to assume that that person who has it and waving it around or putting it to his head is going to use it. So everything changes. Uh, nobody is making an attempt to do any kind of a pit maneuver. You couldn't do it anyway at slow speed chases. You couldn't pull in front of this guy like they do on TV. The best thing now is to wait it out and see where they're going to go and just stay with them. And, but the problem is we have no communication. Nobody, unless they call, um, nobody's going to be able to have communication. Like anything else, you need communication under these circumstances. If you have communication, you're halfway there. At least you've got a direction to go in. Here we have nobody in control, nobody making decisions. Uh, we have uh, no no commute, no nothing. So I'm talking to uh, Patty Joe Fairbanks at the DA's office, and and she says, you know, I've got his cell phone number. Well, that's when they had the old bricks, the old phones. <laughs> right. So I said, well, you know, it's it's a shot in the dark, but uh, what the hell? You know, let me have the number, and I'll see if I can get a hold of him. So she gives me the number, and I call. And I think the first time it was disconnected, and then I call again, and he answers, and I couldn't believe it. And I said, "Oh, Jay, this is, this is Todd Lang." And I, he, I said, "You remember?" Yeah, I remember you. And so I start talking to him, and someone had the foresight to go grab a tape recorder and plug it in. So we start talking, and again, it reverts back to what I just said. This is not about a double murder investigation. This is about someone who you have to assume is suicidal or homicidal. Uh, he may use this gun. You have to assume the gun is real and it's loaded. So it becomes all about the gun, not about anything else. And so I start talking to him about the gun and you got to get rid of it and this type of thing. Tell him that his family still loves him. We can talk these things out. Tomorrow's another day and on and on it goes. And I keep losing him because he goes in and out of cells. Keep calling back. I think there were four or five different conversations over several minutes. Uh, that, that that happened, and he keeps picking up. If, as long as he's talking, his mind is not on the gun. I don't care what we talk about. He's not going to shoot himself. He's not going to shoot AC. Hopefully, he's not going to take a shot at one of those cop cars behind him because then we're going to have a real problem. We get a hold of SWAT. We get a hold of people. That, so they go up to Simpson's place, and they, they set up at Simpson's place. Uh, the closer, and I'm talking to him, and then they tell him we're going to let him go home, get out of the car. We got to talk. It's going to be better tomorrow. All this stuff, but please throw the gun down. Don't go out of the car with a gun. And I'm thinking that it's starting to get dark. Uh, we've got snipers all over his his estate of Rockingham. If he steps out of that Bronco with that car or that gun, and he waves in the wrong direction, they're going to dump him. It's yep. just as simple as that. We do not want that to happen for every reason anyone can think about. So that's what that was all about. And they take him right back to his house, and, and uh, he drops the gun and the cell. It's still on. They didn't even cut out. And he's, of course, in his Bronco for I guess, about 30, 40 minutes, and, and he finally decides to, to come out and leaves the gun inside, uh, thankfully. As as you look back on that, do you believe he was ever going to hurt himself, or was that just a big grab for sympathy? When uh, 
Phil Van Adder talks about it. He said, you know, Phil passed about three and a half years ago. Yes. When when he talks about that, he says, uh, someone in love with themselves doesn't shoot themselves. That says a lot. Is narcissism. Back in my mind, I'm thinking this is just a, a BS thing. He's not going to do it. But how embarrassed would we all be if he did do it or if he shot AC or took a shot at the cops? I don't know at that point, but I can't take that chance. You know, back in my mind, I, I truly believe he's sociopathic and wouldn't do it. But he, he was very tired, obviously, and, and the, when he's talking on the phone, you can tell he hadn't slept in a long time. Uh, you don't take those types of chances. So we, I don't think we'll ever know. But they could have split for the border. You know, he's got this disguised kid. He's got his 8000 bucks in cash, his Hall of Fame ring. He's got his passport and all this stuff. They could have gone for the border, to the Mexican border, and probably gotten across. Uh, but they didn't. They were turning about coming back home. So is this just a play for us and for the media? Because he actually tried to make calls out. I think Bob Costas he tried to contact. Now, is this just part of the play, a little sympathy play? I don't know. And frankly, it didn't matter at that point. You can't take those chances. You you play like you play it straight up. Um, I don't really believe that he's the type that would have committed suicide. I just I, I don't. But again... You wave a gun and it doesn't matter. You wave it in front of one of these SWAT guys, you're going to get dumped. As it so re- that was all that I was concerned with. As it relates to him getting into the house, I know you weren't there at his home, but what was relayed to you about what was happening in the house? Well, SWAT has a negotiator uh, who talked to, uh, to Simpson yelling at him, the yelling between one another. At one point, uh, his son Jason comes running out there. Uh, he upsets AC. You can see that on the video. Uh, AC finally gets out. Now they're yelling, you know, back and forth and trying to talk Simpson out. Simpson picks up a photograph, a framed photograph that he had, I think, of some of his family members. And he's looking at the picture, and, you know, is he playing a game there? You know, we, we don't know, but, again, they're playing it straight up. They just want him to come out. Uh, so eventually he, he does come out, and he leaves the gun in, inside the Bronco, which was a very good move. And he comes out, and he's probably pretty thrashed mentally. Uh, and so he, he comes out, and uh, they, they escort him back into the house. Uh, game over at that, at that particular point in time. The, the, again, the bottom line here is communication. Regardless of what you say, what you think, got nothing to do with anything when there's a gun involved. Uh, there's too much at stake, and all these morons running up and beating on the car that got off the freeway. And what'd you think about that? What'd you think? What? what yeah. Continued right on through the trial. What did you think about that? All the people out along the 405 with signs and posters and cameras and and all of that comes back to something that I'll never forget my, my late mother said to me all, all the entire time I grew up. She used to always say, the human race is nothing to be proud of. <laughs> and she hit the nail right on the head. That's still true today. Uh, it's, it's just incredible. And, and the media loves to see this stuff. <laughs> That's, I can't top that any better than that. So, so uh, did OJ say anything on his way into the precinct after leaving his home? 
Yeah, he said he wanted some juice or something, you know, something to drink. Uh, as far as anything substantive to the negotiator, uh, not really. There was nothing there. Uh, you think you heard everything that was on his mind during the tapes that we did, which, you know, you can take one way or another. You know, it just depends on who's listening and, and what you feel about things. That that tape and of my conversations with him and all of the evidence that was in that car was never introduced into into evidence. The fact that one of the things we found, as I alluded to earlier, and this person was a key to Nicole's Bundy location that he'd stolen from her. She made that complaint to her mother 10 days before the murders even happened. My keys are missing, and I think when O.J. was over here to see the kids, he took them off the hook. He knew they were there. Well, we found those keys, and we found them on his person. That's important circumstantial evidence. That shows a lot, uh, that he could have keyed his way in uh, the gate and the, uh, and the residence itself. Uh, something else you never saw in the trial. So we're going to stop it right here with Detective Lang and wrap up part two of our discussion. In part three, well, we take it all the way through the trial and bring it into 2017. I'll give you a little bit of a preview of that and what you can expect us to talk about in episode 134 of the Clay Young Show and part three of our discussion on O.J. Simpson. Back to wrap up in just a moment. This is Jeff LaDuff, retired chief of police for the city of Baton Rouge. I'm Kelly LaDuff, co-owner of Open Eyes Safety Training and Consulting. Open Eyes is focused on providing quality safety solutions that give businesses and employees the skill set needed to recognize and react to dangerous situations. On a daily basis, we hear yet another story of workplace violence or active shooter. Open Eyes offers a unique approach to keeping you and your businesses safe through site analysis, technology recommendations, policy review, and employee training. To set up a consultation for your business, call us today at 225-313-9713 or visit us at our website at openeyesafetytraining.com. We say keep open eyes because 10% of our population cause 90% of our problems. See them before they see you. The Capital Area Law Enforcement Foundation is hosting a fundraiser on Sunday, August 27th in Perkins Row called A Blue Night Out. The event starts at 6 p.m. and is open to the public. It will feature live music and will honor the law enforcement agencies of the Capital Region. Calif is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that has purchased protective gear for several law enforcement agencies in South Louisiana. Save the date and make sure you attend A Blue Night Out on Sunday, August 27th at 6 p.m. in Perkins Row. This is Dr. Mary Catherine Roderick. And I'm Katie Fetzer. We're the owners and co-founders of The Wellness Studio, a mental health practice with locations here in Baton Rouge and Covington. We are also your hosts for The Waiting Room Podcast here on podcast225.com. Our podcast is a journey into the world of mental health. On our show, we're going to discuss some of the various forms of mental health conditions. We're also going to shed light on the various ways our listeners can get a better understanding of how the mind works and why we do what we do. So subscribe today to get The Waiting Room Podcast here on podcast225.com, iTunes, and the Talk 107 mobile app. This is the Clay Young Show on Podcast225.com. All right, welcome back. Great part two discussion leading us up to part three, which I got to tell you, we've had the conversation already. It is phenomenal. We go entirely through the trial. 
We talk about some of the players in the trial, some of the prosecution, a few of the defense attorneys. We talk about some of the witnesses that take the witness stand. And maybe the most unheralded, unsung hero of this entire saga in terms of stepping to the plate and telling the truth. And you will find out who that person is in part three of our discussion. What did Detective Lang think about the glove demonstration? You all remember the video, the iconic video of Simpson holding his hands up with those gloves on. Did they really fit? Or was what we saw the reality that these gloves were too small? Also, some of the exchanges in the courtroom. Detective Lang was on the witness stand for eight days. And he's going to talk a little bit about his exchanges with the prosecution and his exchanges with one Johnny Cochran. And then the aftermath of the trial. What did Detective Lang think about the trial midway through? Was he fairly sure that this was a slam dunk and it was going to be a conviction? Or was he thinking, there's no way they're going to convict this guy? You will hear him tell you about that. And we also talk about the day of the verdict. And we talk about some of the recent OJ TV hysteria, the Fox Network, FX Movie Network series, The People vs. OJ, Detective Lang has a very surprising fact about the making of that. He will share that with you in episode three. Also, the much acclaimed ESPN documentary, OJ Made in America, what did Detective Lang think about that? And how long did he sit to do that interview with Ezra Edelman? There is so much information still to come in episode 134, part three of our discussion with Detective Tom Lang, and I look forward to having you hear that, and it's coming up in just a few days. So listen, thanks again. Tell your friends about us. Share the show if you can. Tell people where we are. You can follow me on Twitter at ClayYoungBR on Facebook forward slash Clay Young, if you got any questions or suggestions, you can email me, clay at podcast225.com. As always, to make a suggestion about a guest or if you have a question or anything of the sort, you can do that. I'm looking forward to part three of the discussion with Detective Lang making air, and that's going to do that in a few days. So uh, you guys enjoy where you are, and hopefully part one and two have been entertaining. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.